Well, thank you for indulging me and allowing me to preach to a, uh, went to a women's conference this past weekend and got to preach there to a bunch of precious ladies. But I will confess to you, when I was preaching there on Sunday morning, I had an ache in my heart to be home. A ache is how we say it in Texas. I had an ache in my heart to be here, and I'm glad to be back, glad to be home. Turn with me to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, the very end of the chapter. And we've been reading this entire text every week just to imprint this glorious passage into our hearts and minds. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Isaiah 52, 13 begins, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so we open not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, we've been unpacking this passage thematically over the last few Sundays in preparation for Resurrection Sunday. Next week, the passage 
is really the Old Testament's classic prophetic look at the crucifixion of Christ. It is unmatched anywhere in Scripture. And so we've called this mini-series The Suffering Savior. And we've been examining various topics which the text presents to us here. We've already examined the the themes of atonement and the theme of, of the sorrow of Christ. And today, we'd like to see what this text reveals to us concerning justification. But before we really get into that, I, I want to kind of plow the ground of your mind for a few minutes before we plant the seeds of this particular text. I want to talk about justification. The Great Reformation centered on this doctrine. Justification was the watershed moment. This is where the Reformers separated themselves from the Roman Catholic Church, and that was on the issue of justification. This was it. Martin Luther said that justification by faith alone is the article by which the church stands or falls. John Calvin declared justification to be, quote, the main hinge on which religion turns. The great reformers of the 16th century, they believed with all of their heart and they taught that we are justified before God by faith alone. There is no other work. Faith is the finished work of Christ on the cross to pay for our sins, that faith is the sole instrument of justification. There is nothing else. The Roman Catholics offered an official response to the Reformation at the Council of Trent. This happened in the mid-1500s. At the Council of Trent, they attempted to bridge what they viewed as a gap of some sort. And so they tried to connect faith and justification. They tried to make that connection, but they missed the mark. They said that faith is the beginning of justification. They said that faith is the foundation of justification. They said that faith is the root of justification. But they held, as they do to this day, that a person could have faith and still not be justified before God. And so to keep this legalistic stranglehold on its congregants, the Roman Catholic religion reaffirmed at the Council of Trent that justification is accomplished through the sacraments. A person must accept and cooperate in baptism before he receives justifying grace, and then that grace is provisional. He retains justification. He retains grace until he commits a mortal sin, and then that mortal sin kills the grace. It kills justification. You start from square one, and so the person must be justified again through the sacrament of penance, doing good works and earning that grace again and again. And the Roman Catholic religion teaches that to this day. It's a horribly oppressive system that no one is truly justified until they're actually justified. In other words, nobody is truly righteous until they have actually become sinless. And since we can't do that, then we're called supposedly to make up for our sins with all kinds of good deeds and good works. And so you're supposedly working toward this ever-increasing sinlessness in your life. You do all kinds of penance. You do as many good deeds as you can. You're faithful to attend the Mass. You continually take the Eucharist as often as you can, what we call the Lord's Table. All of these things contribute to this account, this heavenly account that supposedly is building up. And hopefully, when you stand before God, you'll be justified. 
What a terrible burden and what a treacherous deception that this religion, it, it places this, this burden on precious and unsuspecting people. And people who, many of them at some level, want to be relieved of their sin, want to be forgiven, want to be justified. But they're presented this system of good works and merits to try to attain what Scripture says is impossible to attain. That is the righteousness of God. Romans 3 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so it's an impossible task. And every Catholic desperately needs, desperately hopes to receive last rites. This final act of penance performed by a priest to offer final purification of the dying person's soul and to prepare them to enter heaven, supposedly. Which means, of course, that there's great concern among Catholics about any situation in which they're not able to receive last rites. What if I'm in an accident? What if I've been dead for 24 hours in my house and nobody found me? What happens then? One Catholic priest writes that at the moment of your death, then and only then do you find out where you stand with God. Listen to what he writes. At the moment of your judgment, your eternal destiny will be irrevocably determined at the throne of the just judge, the king of fearful majesty. You will stand before God and every thought, word, act, and omission during your entire life will be laid bare and put into the scales of justice. It will be determined if you died in God's friendship or not. If in his friendship, is there yet a need for purification and expiation of temporal punishment due to sins? Do you still have attachments to sin or haven't taken care of your obligations and justice yet? All your deeds and indeed all your intentions will be weighed. And then if a person is declared good enough, they're sent to heaven. If they're not quite there yet, they're sent to purgatory to earn their way into heaven. Purgatory does not exist, by the way. Or, because of mortal sin that has been unconfessed or occurred right before death, then they're sent to hell. And so here's this priest's conclusion. What what do we do about this? Here's what he says to do. He says, so, pray, do penance, perform good works, examine your consciences, make good plans for spiritual discipline, fulfill your vocations, learn and practice your faith, Make good communions, use sacramentals and partake in good devotions. And he says in all caps with an exclamation point and go to confession. And maybe you'll make it. But here's what scripture says is really going to happen. To the one who thought that by his good works, he could accomplish anything. Revelation chapter 20 describes the great, the great white throne, the judgment throne of God, the Son of God on the throne as the appointed judge of humanity. Books are pictured as being brought into the throne room. Books and books and books. Revelation 20 says, And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. If you are standing before Jesus Christ at the great white throne, this means that God is about to open the book that has your name on it. Your name on the cover. And you'll be judged according to what's in the book. 
with your name on it. And now Psalm 90 verse 8 comes true in all of its horrifying wrath. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And the blazing light of the perfect omniscience of God, the all-knowing nature of God who knows all, every single transgression will be read in the presence of the courtroom of heaven. Every sinful, selfish thought, every scheme you've ever perpetrated, every self-righteous thought, every millisecond of pride, every misspoken word, every secret lie that no one else knew about, every moment of gossip, every secret sexual sin, every secret, secret sexual desire, every secret of your heart that you thought no one would ever see, every unforgiving thought, every angry thought, every religious act that you performed as a fraud, every time you went to church as an unbeliever and didn't believe the gospel, every lustful look at a woman who's not your wife, every lustful thought toward a man who's not your husband, every moment of disregarding and despising authority, every moment that you violated the fruit of the Spirit, where you were unloving, unjoyful, unpeaceful, impatient, unkind, wickedly vengeful, unfaithful, ungentle, unself-controlled, Every murderous thought, when you let yourself savor how great it would be if someone was dead. Every time you disrespected and disobeyed your parents. Every sarcastic and disrespectful tone of voice. Every guilt trip you ever put anybody on. Every time you were unloving towards your wife. Every time you were unsubmissive towards your husband. Every time you mocked in your mind the preached word of God. Every time you put yourself above the needs of others. Every time you wrecked a relationship without repentance, every time you ever controlled and manipulated a relationship, every time you ever undermined the authority of those over you, every complaint, every murmur, every whisper, every secret, every injustice, everything, 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 it'll all be read. It'll all be there, and there will be no place to run, no place to hide. There will be no defense. Romans 3.19 says that every mouth will be stopped. You won't say, but what about the good things I did? Romans 3.20 says that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. There will be no defender, no advocate, no attorney, no lawyer that you can hire. There will be no slick legal strategies, no legal loopholes whatsoever. And there will be no more purgatory for one more chance because purgatory doesn't exist. It's the invention of man. And after reading every single way you have ever violated the pure holiness of God, you will receive the justice which is fully due to the one who has rebelled for 70, 80, 90 years against God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Revelation 20 verse 15 says that all who are judged according to what they have done will be, quote, thrown into the lake of fire, more commonly known in Scripture as hell. What about hell? Well, we could make a few factual observations about hell. After all, Jesus preached hell way more than he preached heaven. In fact, Jesus preached hell more than any preacher in Scripture. We could make some observations. Hell is a place. It's a place. It's called in Luke 16, the place of torment. Hell is not an, an idea. It's not a concept. It's not a personification of evil. It's not a theological construct. It's not something to debate. It has a location on the map of God. Not only is hell a place, hell is a place of remembrance. 
It's a place of remembrance. Luke 16 tells us from the mouth of Jesus that these lost souls will remember all the good that they received in their lifetimes, and yet never once did they respond to the gospel of Christ. Never once did they acknowledge God as their creator, as their Lord, as their maker. Hell is a place to remember every single time the gospel was given and rejected. Not only is hell a place, not only is it a place of remembrance, hell is a place of remembrance that is forever. In Scripture, it's called an eternal punishment. Matthew 25, it is everlasting. 2 Thessalonians 1, it's the punishment of eternal fire. Jude 1, it's the place where the fire never goes out. Mark 9, it's called the eternal fire in Matthew 25. But not only is hell a place of remembrance that's forever, hell is a place of remembrance that's forever that has names in Scripture that warn you, that plead with you, that beg with you. It's called the place of torment, the place of the many, the great chasm, the fiery furnace, the fiery lake of burning sulfur. It's called the second death, the realm of the dead, the blazing furnace, the place of weeping, the place of gnashing of teeth, the place of outer darkness, the place of agony, the place where the worm never dies. And it's called the place of unquenchable fire. No one can say we were not warned. And there's no mere human who can save you. No one to come to your aid. There's no one who can help you. Because you would absolutely deserve everything you get. And so your only hope and my only hope is if God himself would intercede. If God himself would satisfy his own perfect, white, hot, pure, righteous wrath without ever violating his own justice and holiness. Your only hope was for God to justify you in his own sight, to legally present you to himself as pure, as righteous, to somehow present you before the throne as being as holy as God is. So what's the difference between justification from the Catholic point of view and justification from the biblical point of view? The Catholic religion says that God does not justify any person until real, actual righteousness is attained, which, of course, is impossible. That God doesn't declare a person righteous, that is, fully purified of sin and legally declared innocent until that person is righteous. But the biblical view of the gospel says that God justifies a person based on the imputed, the accounted righteousness of jesus christ this is credited to the person when he believes on the lord jesus for forgiveness of sin by faith let me put it in very blunt and and succinct terms to the roman catholic justification is based on your perfection and is hopefully given in the future but the biblical view of justification is that it's based on Christ's perfection and definitely given at the moment of your salvation. That's a no-brainer. Scripture clearly says, Titus 3, 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. He saved us. This is past tense. This is a done deal. It's a finished work. Romans three twenty eight. For we hold that that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. No good deed contributes to your justification. You don't have any currency with which to barter with God. 
And at what point does justification occur? It occurs at salvation. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified. This is a Greek word which means to be legally declared righteous. And this is by faith, from, of, by faith. That's the means. And we have peace with God. Peace with God isn't speaking of an internal feeling of peace. It's not an emotion. It's the cessation of war. That God is no longer at war with you. Why? Because all the charges against you have been dropped. Why? Because you've been declared righteous. You have been given righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 9 confirms the past tense nature of justification. Listen to this confidence. Listen to this assurance. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10 of the same chapter says that we are reconciled to God. Verse 11 says we have, past tense, received reconciliation. That's the result of justification. Is that now you are the friend of God. The Catholic says, hopefully when, you'll die, when you die, you'll find out if you're God's friend or not. Justification says you are God's friend now. And it's permanent. Well, I wanted to plow a little ground in your mind. That's a theological foundation for you. But the question is, how is it that God can justify you? How can he declare you righteous since, in fact, you're not righteous? Since you know your own sin nature, you know your own failings. Just this morning, we had to confess our sins to the Lord so that we might be ready to worship. How can you be declared righteous since you're still doing all the things that I said from Scripture merit a trip to hell, not to heaven? Well, that's what our text in Isaiah 53 explains to us with such beauty and clarity. We're just going to look at a couple of select portions which explain the doctrine of justification. And we'll put together a very simple definition of justification in two parts. We'll keep this very simple. Part one, in our definition of justification, Christ was credited with your sin. Christ was credited with your sin. And we'll finish that sentence in a few minutes. But part one in our definition of justification, Christ was credited with your sin. And we'll focus our attention now on verse 9 of chapter 53. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. They made, this is a word that means a sign. They assigned his grave with the wicked. This is, this is plural, and with a rich man, singular, in his death. Now, this is an important distinction here because in Hebrew, if Isaiah was simply making a distinction or a comparison between different classes of people, for example, the wicked versus the rich, he would have used two singular nouns. But, but he uses a plural, wicked men, and a singular, rich man. Jesus was originally assigned a shameful grave with the two criminals with whom he was, he was crucified. He was going to be thrown into some horrible pit or some poor man's grave. But he would receive instead an honorable burial. Matthew 27 records, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
Then Pilate took it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Joseph of Arimathea, he recognized that Jesus didn't deserve to die. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. And he wanted to give him a burial indicative of the true life that Jesus had led. I find it very interesting that God gave to Jesus a man named Joseph to care for him at his birth. And he gave to Jesus a man named Joseph to care for him at his death. A little interesting note here. When Isaiah says they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, death is plural, literally in his deaths. This is what's known in Hebrew as a plural of amplification or plural of majesty when the plural is referring to a singular thing, but there's a, there's a big emphasis, there's an intensification. In other words, Isaiah is not just pointing out the death of Christ, he's pointing out the supreme death of Christ, the magnificent death of Christ, the significant death of Christ, the noteworthy death of Christ. Verse 8 says that his generation thought it was a pointless death, but in fact it was a momentous death, it was a weighty death, it was a a history-altering death, it was a salvation death. And we can put it this way, The death of Christ was the death to beat all deaths because he purchased death by his death. Did you catch that? His death eradicated death. That's majestic. And so his burial in the grave of a wealthy man, a man who had influence, who had substance, this was a grave that said, this man did something that mattered. It was right, it was appropriate, it was honoring It was worshipful. His burial is a key component of the gospel. It's a key component of our belief in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Why is the burial of Christ important? It's important because it's proof that He really died. That he spent three days in a chamber without air. In a chamber that no one could survive. If there was any doubt as to whether or not Jesus had actually died, then doubt is cast on whether or not the wrath of God has actually been satisfied. If Jesus had just come down off the cross and lain on the ground for an hour and then suddenly revived, I don't know, was the wrath of God satisfied? But he was dead for three days in a chamber of burial. By the way, this helps us to be very precise in clarifying the truth about Christ. Muslims believe that Jesus never died on the cross, but was rescued and taken directly to heaven. But Scripture is clear that he died and he was buried. Listen, Jesus was buried in a garden tomb. He was buried in a tomb where there's wealth, there's provision. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. And I find it ironic that it was in the garden, the Garden of Eden, that sin and death and the grave were empowered. And now in the garden tomb, death and the grave are defeated and they're crushed. So he's, he's credited with the death of a wicked man, but because his death for sin was so momentous, so, so big, he was assigned a grave of honor and dignity. Well, looking down at verse 12, we can continue to see how Christ was credited with sin, how he identified with us as sinners, in the middle of the verse, 
says, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Poured out is a Hebrew verb form that is causative. It means that the servant, the suffering servant, Christ, caused his life to end. It was a voluntary choice. Jesus confirmed this in John 10, verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. But the second phrase here is so key to us. He was numbered with the transgressors. This is a core principle to the gospel. It's vital to our understanding of what Jesus went through for our sake. This verb form, he was numbered. This is a a passive verb. The subject isn't doing something, but it's a subcategory of this verb called a tolerative. And I only say that because it, it tells you what it's doing. The subject allows or the subject tolerates something to be done to him, to happen to himself. And what did Christ allow? What did he tolerate? Verse 7 tells us that he was tried in the court as a lamb led to the slaughter. He offered no defense. He made no attempt to exonerate himself. Jesus not only allowed himself to lose his life, but to lose his good name and to be considered by any onlooker as a massive disappointment and to be considered a transgression or a transgressor, rather. And this is very interesting. This is a a participle in Hebrew, meaning that he was numbered with the transgressing with those who continue to commit crimes, with those who continue to sin. He's numbered with those who continue in their rebellion. Now, Jesus fully knew that he would be crucified between two criminals. He he fully knew that the chief priests and the Pharisees were trying to make him appear guilty. But they also knew that he was totally innocent. He was sinless. He was spotless. So what do you do if you are completely innocent and spotless and you're going to be tried and your innocence is, is obvious? To be crucified and to fulfill the Father's plan for him, he would have to appear as a criminal, appear as a rebel. Did he do that? Well, when Jesus and the disciples were about to leave the upper room after the Last Supper to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22 records this just odd exchange between Jesus and his disciples. It's almost like like a little footnote that doesn't seem to make sense. Luke 22, 35, Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He's referring to earlier times in ministry when he sent them out and specifically said, don't take anything with you. You will live by faith. Now, you might think that Jesus is trying to give another object lesson in faith here. He's not. He's just saying, there was a time when I asked you to trust me and don't take anything with you. But now he's saying, now is not that time. The very next verse, he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. He's saying, guys, get armed. Now, what's he saying? Well, he's, he's telling them, get your bags of money, make them obvious. Get your knapsacks, your bags, filled with your stuff, and if you don't have a sword, buy one. Now, if you're walking through a city late at night in ancient Jerusalem and you see a dozen men 
with jingling money bags, some carrying heavy bags filled with things, and a few of them carrying swords. What do you think about those men? You would think they were a band of criminals. Why is Jesus setting this up? Luke twenty two thirty seven. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. This is the only place in all the New Testament where Isaiah 53 is actually quoted. It's referenced many times, but it's the only quote. And what the Holy Spirit deemed the most important to quote is that Jesus would be numbered with. He would be accounted as. He would be allowing himself to appear as a criminal. But they're really only stage props, so to speak, enough to confirm to those arresting him that maybe he does need to be arrested. Luke twenty two thirty eight, and they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, that's enough. It's enough to, to give us the look. That's enough to get Jesus in the hot water he needs to be in in order to be arrested. In fact, even though Jesus quoted Isaiah 53 and told them that it was just so he could appear as a criminal, Peter apparently misunderstood because he tried to use one of the swords. But Jesus identified as a criminal. If I could put it another way, he identified as you. He identified as a lawbreaker. He's credited with sin. He identified with you so that you could be identified with him. This is the identification with Christ that Paul spoke of in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus identified with you when he was baptized by John the Baptist. John had been baptizing the repentant in the Jordan River, and here comes Jesus acting like someone who needs to repent. John protested. You recall, he said, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus insisted, and he humbled himself to be baptized in front of all the others. He identified himself with sinners. Listen, somebody comes to me as a pastor and says, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to be baptized. And I say, then you're not a Christian. It's that simple. Jesus was willing to be humiliated. Why wouldn't you? And when we're baptized, we're then identifying ourselves with Christ. We're buried with him in death. We're raised with him in life. And when we were saved, the Holy Spirit descended on us like the Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism. Christ was credited with your sin. He identified with you. Let's complete our simple definition of justification. Christ was credited with your sin, and we'll finish the sentence, so you could be credited with his righteousness. Christ was credited with your sin, so you could be credited with his righteousness. Look at verse 11 with me, just the middle section. Verse 11, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Make many to be accounted righteous. What is the knowledge that the righteous one possesses? Well, the knowledge that the righteous one possesses is exactly what God requires concerning sin, what must be done about sin. The wages of sin is death, and Christ alone brings this knowledge to us. How is it that we have the knowledge of salvation. It's because we have what Romans calls the word of Christ. He brings the solution. He brings the knowledge. And this is perhaps the clearest explanation of the doctrine of justification in all the Old Testament. 
that you have no righteousness to offer God. All you have is sin. There's no good work you can do to undo a single sin. You can't undo a lie by telling the truth. But Christ offers to put in place of your filthy life, his righteous life, so that, here's the word, you are accounted as sinless. You are accounted as perfect. You are accounted as holy. You are accounted as ready for heaven. He is the righteous one who will credit you with his righteousness. So this simple definition of justification, Christ was credited with your sin so that you could be credited with his righteousness. How clearly and obviously Isaiah 53 teaches us this truth. But my definition is not original at all. I simply took what the Apostle Paul already said in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's justification. And listen, you might ask, when does the doctrine of justification impact my daily life? I think a better question is, when doesn't it impact your daily life? In all likelihood, this day, perhaps this hour, you have sinned. You've sinned in thought, maybe in word, maybe a sin of omission when you forgot to do something you should have done, or a sin of commission when you did something you shouldn't have done. On this day alone, if you had an angel writing your sins in a book with your name on it, that angel would be getting hand cramps. If that angel had a laptop, he'd be getting carpal tunnel syndrome right now, typing so that the keyboard is on fire. You can't confess your sin fast enough. You can't time your death such that you confess your final sin right before you die. You can't possibly keep up with your own sin. And that's the desperation that some precious Catholics find themselves in and under the system of penance and good works, urgently trying to earn God's favor. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, Part 2, Section 2, Article 4, called the Sacrament of Penance and Reconciliation, contains 77 paragraphs, numbers 1422 through 1498 if you're counting, on explanations on how to continually keep getting your favor back with God. 77 paragraphs. The responsibility is wholly on the church member to do all the right things, the least of which is confessed to a priest and to do those things assigned by the priest to regain favor with God. Paragraph number 1473 says, quote, The forgiveness of sin and restoration of communion with God entail the remission of the eternal punishment of sin, but temporal punishment of sin remains. I don't even know what that means. While patiently bearing sufferings and trials of all kinds, and when the day comes, serenely facing death, the Christian must strive to accept this temporal punishment of sin as a grace. Temporal punishment of sin is grace? He should strive by works of mercy and charity as well as by prayer and various practices of penance to change his nature. How do you serenely face death when it's a race to see if you can satisfy God with your good works or not, especially when Scripture has already condemned you as one who does not do good, who is not righteous? That's not a recipe for a serene death. That's a recipe for a terrifying death. And that's a recipe for a terrifying life. 
No wonder the Catholic religion has such a stranglehold on its precious people and the victims of false theology. They've been deceived into a life of fear, or worse, a life of denial that, yeah, I think I'll be okay with God as long as I confess my sins on occasion. No, you won't be okay. Because justification happens in this life. Justification is not in the future. It must be in your past. Justification in Christ presents to us a finished work, a completed act of salvation. It is full salvation. How full is it? I want to give you a short list. Because I want you to be so secure. I want you to live a life of joy. I want you to live a life that says, I am justified and I am happy in the Lord. How full is your salvation? Let me give you the words of Christ himself. We'll just go straight to the Savior. And I'll make this list from his words. First, your salvation, you have permanent innocence. Permanent innocence. John 5, 24. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. That's permanent innocence. You have a finished transaction. A finished transaction. Jesus said in Luke 18, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, past tense, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Not only do you have permanent innocence and the finished transaction, you have instant forgiveness. Instant forgiveness. Mark 2, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Past tense. It's done. You're also given forever freedom. Forever freedom. John 8, 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's a word that means always. You're given perfect rest. Perfect rest. Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you think you're waiting to stand before God to find out your eternal fate, that's not rest. That's stress. Permanent innocence, finished transaction, instant forgiveness, forever freedom, perfect rest. How about this one? You're given sonship status. Sonship status. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, meaning those who have made peace with God, for they shall be called sons of God. Mark 3, 35, Whoever does the will of God, meaning repenting from sin, he is my brother and sister and mother. Sonship status. You're a son or a daughter of God himself. You're given perpetual comfort. Perpetual comfort. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, meaning mourn their own sin, for they shall be what? Comforted. You're given sufficient righteousness. Not 98%, not 99%, 100%. Sufficient righteousness. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Meaning you'll receive all the righteousness that you need. You have completed redemption. Completed redemption. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Then whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And you have guaranteed inheritance. A guaranteed inheritance. Matthew 19, Jesus said, Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. That's just a short list. He, he made an ironclad promise. 
He said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And you might say, but I'm not pure in heart, but Christ is. I don't deserve to see God. True, but Christ does. And you're in Him. He stood where you can't stand in the path of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He exchanged His perfect life for your sinful life so that you could be credited with the pure heart, the pure words, the pure actions, the pure motives of Christ and so that you could see God. And now you you say, well, what is this doctrine of justification? What does that do to my daily life? Let me tell you, it gives you some tremendous gifts. It gives you confidence, confidence in a secured future. 1 Peter 1 speaks of our inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. If you think that your salvation can be lost and regained and lost and regained, you're no better off than the poor Catholic who's desperately hoping for an end justification. The idea of losing your salvation is totally contrary to the doctrine of justification. You are justified, therefore you're confident. Not only do you walk every day in confidence, you walk every day in joy. Enjoy the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 was reading the word of God. He was seeking after God. And by the proclamation of the gospel of Christ by Philip, he received Christ as his Savior. And Philip explained, as Philip explained Jesus from the text he was reading. And Acts 8.39 says, he went on his way rejoicing. By the way, what text was the Ethiopian reading? Isaiah 53. You walk every day with confidence. You walk every day with joy. You walk every day with worship. Worship. Listen, we don't worship God in hopes of gaining God's favor or hopes of regaining God's favor. We don't say, I've been sinning a lot. I better go to church. We worship as those who already enjoy the favor of God. We do what 1 Peter 2, 9 tells us. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We worship because we were in the darkness and we are in the light, present tense, future, forever. Confidence, joy, worship. That's a daily result of justification. Justification is not some dry doctrine. It is what makes life worth living. Christ was credited with your sin so that you could be credited with his righteousness. And that really is the cry of the sinner in need of forgiveness. We don't read a prayer to someone and say that if you say this prayer, magically you'll be saved. But from the heart of true repentance and the heart of desperation, one who would cry out to God and say, Oh God, would you forgive me of the countless ways I've offended and violated your perfect holiness? Would you transfer my guilt to Christ? And would you transfer Christ's righteousness to me? That's a prayer of salvation. When the books are opened, which contain all the sins of everyone who has ever rejected God's free offer of salvation in Christ, there's another book on the scene. Revelation 20 tells us it's called the book of life. If you've repented and received Christ as your Savior, now when that book is opened and the pages are turned and maybe alphabetically your name comes up what will the entry under your name say in the book of life perhaps it will say something along these lines he was born without sin he grew up perfectly submitting to his parents never sinning at all he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with god and man he always did god the father's will and was obedient to the very end even unto death 
And you say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like my life. That sounds like Christ's life. Precisely. Because you've been credited with his life. You've been credited with the life he lived because he paid for your sins with his death. I don't know what's on the cover of the book of life. But if anybody were asking my opinion, I know what would be appropriate for the cover. A bunch of past tense verbs. From Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, past tense, he also glorified. It's a done deal. Salvation is accomplished by God and God alone. So certain and so secure that it is described in the past tense. And my prayer for every one of you is that you have made that transaction with God, that you have received your legal status as innocent and as justified. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for this glorious text in Isaiah 53, which points us with crystal clear precision to the cross. We praise you and thank you that Christ died to make many be accounted righteous and to bear their iniquities. Lord, I would pray for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl here today whose legal status has not changed and who is still the enemy of God. I pray that this day they would cry out to you and even in these moments would ask you for the mercy that you would so freely give to simply ask, Father, Forgive me of my sin and please credit to me the life of Christ. Be merciful. I pray, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of those hearing this message. I pray that you would prick the hearts of the lost who need to have their legal status changed. And Lord, if by your grace and by your mercy any Roman Catholics are hearing this message, oh, I pray they would run to the cross for justification that can be had now in this moment, not hoped for in the future, and that they would repent of believing a false gospel and come to faith in Jesus Christ where they might have confidence and joy and worship. And Lord, for those of us here who know Christ, who have been justified, I pray that we would obey Ephesians 4, 1, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, worthy of the gospel. I pray that we would act as those who have been justified, that we would do good works not to gain your favor, but because your favor is gained. And that we would do them out of love, that we would obey you because we love Christ, because we're so grateful and thankful for our salvation. Also that Christ might receive glory and honor and all the, all the laud and glorious praise that is due to his name. And it is in his name that we gather. It is in his name we sing. It is in his name we proclaim the gospel, and it is in his name we pray. Amen.